Welcome to a special edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series. During this interview, we had the honor of speaking with journeyman jazz bassist and Kansas City's very own Bob Bowman. Born and raised in Kansas City, he made his way from New York City to Los Angeles playing with the best in jazz. He came back to Kansas City in 1988 and has been here ever since and remains a vital part of a very healthy Kansas City jazz scene. During this interview, we covered a large list of questions, including a new album he just released called Songs for Sandra in honor of his late wife. He's very open about all things jazz and how he views his career from yesterday, today, and into tomorrow. Dig it, my friends. Now I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in here. Let me kind of start out at the beginning of your life. Tell me where you were. T- tell me where you were born and raised. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Topeka, Kansas. Was there anything specific about Topeka that kind of lent to you getting into jazz? Yeah, actually, there was, and they have a a jazz workshop series there. Uh, at that time, this is like in the 60s, um, they had a, it was kind of like weekend warrior musicians that some of them pretty good and a couple of good arrangers and they had a big band that would, would uh, they'd play the arrangements and stuff, you know, and once in a while they'd have a little concert and then they kind of evolved into getting involved in the schools a little bit and they started the junior jazz workshop, so like the best kids in the high school there were six high schools in the area and then and then um, so that that was kind of a push, and then out of that, they uh, play a concert, and then they pick, you know, they thought the best deserving or whatever uh, to go to a Stan Kenton clinic and, and for a week, you know, or, or a jazz camp thing. And uh, so I, I I got that when I was fifteen. And I was already playing some gigs and stuff that opened up my eyes pretty big right then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I just listened to that album at the uh, Village Vanguard with Bill Evans recently, the one right before he had that accident. That was an amazing album. Yeah, it, is. it still is. It just blows me away. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and wore out three copies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's the way to do it, man. That's the way to do it. Um, so you started out on the piano, moved on to the clarinet, and then landed on the bass. Why did that lineage go the way it did? Uh, a friend of my parents uh, had a Pete Fountain. Well, they're like Pete Fountain, so they gave me a Pete Fountain album. I, I kind of, I think I sort of like bass. I heard it on like, oh, not really so much jazz. They didn't have much jazz around, but uh, but, that, but then I, I heard uh, this Pete Fountain thing, and there was a bass solo on the St. Louis Blues. <laughs> <laughs> it's a guy named Morty Corb, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember. I, that's what I want to play. <laughs> so, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that's that cool. So I was, I was like, oh, I probably was 11, and I got my first bass when I was 12, which is also kind of interesting because we had uh, a Dalmatian and uh, they bred her, and she had 10 puppies, and so I took care of them and raised them and uh, sold some of them, and the money I made, I bought my first bass. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. 
Very cool. That's a great story. Very cool. So let me talk to you. Let me talk to you about this. So we kind of talked about Topeka, the Stan Kenton Jazz Clinic, and then you moved on North Texas State University. What was that experience like there? Really diving into a university environment. Well, yeah, that was sort of, I kind of made the connection through the Kenton Clinic because a lot of the guys in the band had been through that school. My parents liked the idea of going to college. Died it too, actually. Sure. But yeah, it was a, it was a great time to be there. I was there. At the, I don't know, it was just a lot of good players, and, and uh, there wasn't. Uh, there was just a strictly big band, and that was mostly about side reading and breeding uh, studio musicians. It seemed like you know. But yeah. Outside of that, we we sometimes would play three sessions a day, and, and there were guys like uh, both bass players were Scott. Dennis Irwin was there and Mark Johnson was there at the same time and uh, Steve Houghton and drummers and John Riley was there and Lyle Mays was there and a whole slew of people. So that, that was pretty amazing and we were all there at the same time. So let me kind of go back a little bit before North Texas. Your first professional live jazz gig, what was it like? Were you nervous? Did it feel natural for you? What was it like? <laughs> well, I suppose, uh, oh gosh, probably the way I eased into it was playing like nice at Columbus and stuff guys you know but we played some dumb tunes and then you know like played like Bye Bye Blackbird and Indiana and things like that yeah kind of getting closer to the jazz thing and then the, oh I'd actually one of the first gigs I had was three three of his high school buddies and we all we were like the only three in our school we had had a jazz band in our school but it was you know you had to eat I meet at uh, 7 a.m. or something outside of school for like two days a week. But so we had a, a trio, a trombone, bass, and drums. And uh, as I recall, about every tune we played was a D flat. <laughs> That's but, funny. Uh, but the, yeah, then, so it wasn't really a definitive first gig. You know, uh, I played the, you know, then our high school band did go to some festivals and stuff. And I remember going to one of Rich Madison's, one of the clinicians, and he was. It was real complimentary, and I'm like, oh, gosh, well, I you know, think I can play, you know. Is it? So, but I guess, you know, but I guess I got with a trio, another trip with a pianist, and they were all older and really good, and we were playing, like, uh, we'd play Bill Evans, and Brubeck stuff, and then we'd throw in Alley Cat or some dude at, you know, at the country clubs. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we managed to work, and we, we they got pretty good money, you know, and I could play one gig, and it was as much as my friends were making and made it working at McDonald's in two weeks, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Now they're all doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's, let's move to the L.A. part of your life. So you go to L.A., you get experience with Thad Jones, the Mel Lewis Orchestra, Toshiko Akiyoshi, Lou Tabak and, and, and his big band. What, what was that like, to get in front of a bigger crowd, you know, these kind of... Uh, these brilliant musicians on stage. What did you learn? What was all that like? Well, actually, the first thing I did was with that Jones and Mel Lewis in New York. That was a that was the real eye opener there. Like I kind of went from North Texas. I had like a year where I didn't go to school, and I was playing in Portland, Oregon, for a steady gig, and I moved back to Dallas and worked around there for a little bit. And a drummer friend of mine hooked me up with Mel when they were looking for a bass player, and he gave me a tape, and so they asked me to come up. Play. I'm not thinking I'm going to get the gig or anything, but someone got me a bunch of their charts, and I kind of knew some of their music pretty well anyway. And, and uh, so I ended up uh, playing 
my audition was at the Vanguard on Monday night, you know. But I don't know, I didn't even think about it, you know. I remember just like, wow, you know, this is where Scott LaFaro and Bill Evans played and Coltrane yeah. and all these guys, you know. That was cool, but I didn't really get nervous. Yeah. Why? Hmm. But then, but I, I remember just playing it the first set or so, and, and Mel was, he's pretty opinionated and didn't hold back, and so he, you know, told me all the things I was doing wrong, and I was thinking, well, at least I'm learning a lot, and then at, at the end of the, this, co- this conversation, he goes, oh, by the way, you got your gig. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, right then and there, like, in, in you know, for, you know, one set, I learned more than I did it the whole time at North Texas. Wow. Wow. Not that I didn't learn anything down there, but it was just amazing. You know, I remember playing with Mel the first time. I said, oh my gosh, I want every gig I play to feel like this, you know. So you came back to Kansas City in 1988. Why Why did you come back? Um, well, that time I was living in, in L.A. I don't know, I never really thought I'd live in L.A., but I even looked at that gig with uh, Toshiko, and so that was kind of through Mel Lewis, actually. But uh, that's why I lived out there, and then I just... I always liked the Midwest or around Kansas and Kansas City. And my parents basically, they were getting older and they were just wonderful parents. And I just kind of felt like all I wanted to be with them as they're getting older, you know. Yeah. Because my, my sisters were out on the West Coast as well. So I, so I figured I could, it seemed like what the scene was like in LA. They were, you know, good players, chorus, great players. And there were quite a few gigs. They didn't pay very well. Mm hmm. And the cost of living is a lot more, and I realized the gigs actually paid better in Kansas City, and, and you know, cost of living is not, there's not the, the, the depth of players, but the, the few, the really good ones are really good, you know. So, uh, that, that's, you know, knew that I could probably, you know, make a living, at, at least that's what I was doing in L.A. Once I quit being on the road, I just played around L.A., and it seemed like Kansas City was probably a better place to be. Sure. And it's definitely turned out to be by now, for sure. It's really good here right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to get to that here in the next couple questions. But what what I want to know, when you came back as kind of this uh, well-journeyed Midwestern jazz musician that went to L.A. and New York, when you came back, what was the reception like? Did it Was it easier to get gigs? Was there kind of this, um, you know, kind of history that helped you get more gigs? Well, in a way, and in, in a way, it was like uh, some of the people, they kind of put up a, a little wall or something. Well, he's just, you know, from L.A., he thinks he can come in here and, you know, play that just because just he lived out there, he plays better. And so, you know, and, and I, I probably played a little too modern for some of these guys, you know, and, and I didn't really adjust. And <laughs> most of them are gone now anyway, but. Uh, but it was it was good. It was basically good. But there was there were some you know guys that you could feel like a little resistance. You know, and, and I think a lot of it kind of had to do with they never actually went out, left this area, or tried to you know do it elsewhere. Which I think is an excellent thing to do. I mean, you know, you're kind of in a relatively small scene, and that's all you know. I think it's. I noticed the difference with the guys that have. And there's quite a few of them here that have gone out and made names for themselves and then stayed back and then come back. I mean, and, uh, I think that some of those guys never did that, and that was probably, you know, they were frustrated, I should say, probably. So, so let me ask you this. This was the question I promised I was going to get back to. 
these days, Kansas City is going through quite a jazz renaissance surge with Herman Mahari and all these young guys out there under, you know, coming out of Bobby Watson's program at UMKC. What is that like? How do you feel about, you know, playing with these young guys and, and the Kansas City scene these days? I, I love it. I, I love playing with these young guys. Young guys. I would last night. I just stopped by the majestic. Herman was playing, and there happened to be a whole bunch of guys there. You know, at least twenty. Most one guy might have been twenty years younger than me, and everybody else is younger than that. <laughs> <laughs> but they 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 love me. I love them, and I play with them, and I hire them, and they hire me, and uh, you know, I, I try to you know keep my game up. You know. Yeah, and they they respect my experience and, and you know all that. So it, it's just I think it's fan, the attitude here is just so warm that, that everybody's just trying to do the same thing and real appreciative of everybody else. And there's a lot of really good bass players here. But of all the instruments, I'd say that there's more per capita than the really good bass players than any other right now. So yeah. Interesting. I've had a chance to really listen to this, and my first impression, which is when you really go with your gut, is this is a very, it sounds awfully personal and cathartic, and I read the Jam article that Michael Schultz wrote, and I get the feeling that, I guess that's my question to you, was this album really a catharsis for you? Oh man, I never thought of it that way, but probably, so yeah, this definitely, I, I kind of I wanted to do something my own. I've done a couple of inner string albums, which were, that was pretty much my band, but it wasn't like my name was on it. And this one was like, I wanted to do my own departure. And, and I, I, I've been playing with Roger Wilder, which I absolutely love, and I wanted to explore that. So that's kind of the bulk of the thing. It's mostly Roger and I and Todd. And, and piano is a lot of more piano than my previous stuff. But the, I think, yeah, it was a bland stuff. Songs for Sandra was, you know, like, just the idea. Some of those tunes you probably didn't know, but it's the way we played them. Uh, there's some, some of the tunes that I, like the very thought of you, I never cared for that tune very much until Laura Caviani just started playing it. <clears throat> and so all of a sudden, I just, we just played it, and that was the take. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I guess I like this tune after all. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed they're, like, really fit, you know, and, it was an interesting way to do a recording because I, you know, I really don't care what people think about it. Right. <laughs> you know? So uh, it's probably the best way to do it. You know? Yeah, it's a great album. In fact, on a day like today, this is the ideal album for me just to sit back and just take it all in. It's just, it, 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 it's, it's a great listen, and I'm looking forward to hearing it more, and I'm going to spin yeah. it on my show. So. Good, yeah. oh, and there's a couple, you know, things where we can, we get, get the roaring pretty good on it, and Rogers. He actually said himself, which is unusual, it's his best play. He felt like he's done. Nice for him to say that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's cool. So in your in the jam article that Schultz wrote, you had mentioned that people get kind of funny asking you about Sandra, and I felt your answer was really spot on where you were like, I don't get that. I don't have any problems talking about it. Kind of elaborate a little bit on that for me. Of 
going through something like that, and, uh, uh, like doing this, this recording, and uh, we also established a scholarship fund in her name. It's like, I don't know, it's just it's a real tribute, and just, you know, it's almost if she's still here, and while she is in spirit, of course, but, uh, but yeah, so I don't have a problem of, interesting so let me let me kind of switch tracks here a little bit and ask you you played with luminaries like carmen mccray freddie hubbard and bud shank what did these individuals that were so well versed and so big in the jazz world teach you not only about jazz but about life uh well where i spent most time was with carmen and uh, unfortunately she was a very unhappy person and uh although she was funny as could be and uh we always we got along really well with the the, uh, the drummer Mark Police and I don't know she seems like wanted to hang out with us and stuff you know but, okay. uh, but the, you didn't want to go to a restaurant with her because she's just heck you know just hell on it on servers and things like that oh no <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but 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 you, no you she start telling stories and and. Uh, Especially if she was around somebody, every one time we were under Roy Haynes, and they just started going into stories. And, oh man, it was just incredible hearing you know from these people. You know, and they're just laughing. You know, it's just like the stories that we go through now. You know, that happen things that happen now. And but they were talking about it. Of course, so at that point, to me, they look like oh, this is like huge history, which it really was. But yeah, you know, but you know, as you could tell, she. She loved to sing. She loved to sing, and but she she hated being out on the road and all that. She just wanted to be home with her her big standard poodle, uh, Alfie, <laughs> <laughs> which she had more than one. And they were all named Alfie. <laughs> <laughs> nice, <laughs> very nice. Um, yeah, but but Shank was uh, he was different because he just. Uh, he was even not a man of a lot of words or anything, but uh, I don't know how we met. It was at Dante's something, I think it was, that maybe his band, I'm not sure, but all of a sudden he hired me for some really important gigs, and, and I was like, wow, this is pretty neat, you know? Yeah. And then, then he kind of ended up moving up to Seattle and just kind of staying up there in that area up there in the San Juan Islands, I guess it is. So he kind of kind of left L.A., but that, that was a pretty big impact, and, Freddie, I didn't really have much contact with him. And I mean, I felt like I was just this kind of a sub. But he, he never really had a set band. It wasn't like I was subbing for anybody. It was just like, the band was never really set. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. You know. No, I hear you. So, but but you would, I would say, you know, just like the playing level was huge. Just so 
high and the, the energy was just amazing. You know, just right out of the chute. You know, don't want to be, yeah. You, know, you better be good and warmed up. Yeah, right. <laughs> he did not do. <laughs> he pick up the horn and pull it out of the checker case and what I think probably did is look in, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So, if there is anybody in the world of jazz, whether here with us or not, who would you like to have played with and talked to? Oh, I suppose it was Bill Evans, and I got really close to that happening, too, and then he died. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I, I was friends with Mark, because of North Texas, Mark Johnson, and uh, he kind of hooked it up to me to you know, not get the gig, but come and play with Bill on that Sunday afternoon at the Vanguard, and then Bill died. Yeah. So that was that. You know that. Well, that was so that was so close that I, you know that's the first name that comes to mind. Plus, I just always love music. Sure, sure. But I suppose you could dig back, and also you know Scott Farrell, for instance. Just yeah. He lived such a short life. It'd be interesting to know what that guy was like. And then if I did have lunch, with, well, I'd not just be with with uh, Count Basie, but was with Thad Jones and and uh, some jazz festival or uh, all of it and, uh, and I remember just sitting there and just not saying a word and, and he was just hilarious he just, <laughs> he just laughed the whole time <laughs> just one sentence after another was just bring you to your knee <laughs> <laughs> That's but nice. you know people like that you know like Mike Mingus or someone like that would be interesting to know that'd be probably pretty frightening <laughs> yeah yeah but, uh, just, you know it'd be, it'd be interesting with or know people of that caliber and that time and so forth. Sure, sure. It was really, music was really forming, you know. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, what's the nicest thing a fan has ever said to you? inspired you all these years to continue making jazz music? What What is it about you? What is it about jazz? What is it? Oh, I'd say number one is the musicians and the people you get to play with and what a, incredible people they are for the most part. I mean, most of them are just very giving and, of course, really smart. Yeah. And uh, that, I mean, that, and then to, especially when you play with close friends uh, and, and some people like Danny Ambry and Absolutely. So you just had a, 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 an album come out. You've been steady throughout your career. What What is left for you to accomplish? What do you want to continue doing 
for the years to come? And what 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 do you want to ultimately accomplish in the realm of music and jazz? I probably couldn't put this in words, but it just uh, and then a lot of this is it's kind of stuff that's been in my mind since when I was old, my early to late twenties. It seems like life got in the way for a few decades, and and uh, uh, Sandra was very a very huge fan big supporter she was always that you know if she could be there she was out more than any other musician's girlfriend or wife you know and uh, when she died it, it certainly like made me like uh, kind of think way back to when I really wanted to uh, you know what I was thinking and just you know more creative I suppose because sometimes it's the one thing that can happen in Kansas City it has happened it gets too stuck in the tradition it was a creative side or side of it but, but right now of course so many of the younger guys it's pretty, things are pretty fresh but just myself personally I've just felt like wow like I haven't felt in decades you know so it's like things I'm trying to achieve and yeah. so forth but just you know it's just kind of the same thing just trying to move people and you know I'd, I'd like to play I'd like to go back to uh, I'd love to tour some other countries again and be older and <laughs> more experienced and have it a little bit more under my control, you know, say, not just say my own band, but, you know, of, of a group of my own friends and do it that way without any uh, stardom surrounding it. Because there was always a little of that with most of the names. It was just a little, not necessarily them, but the way they were treated by yeah. People who are playing for or working for, you know. Sure. So there's always a little separation, but it'll be nice to just kind of go to, you know, I'd love to go back to Europe and Australia and, uh, and Japan for sure. Yeah. In a different, you know, having, being a lot older and <laughs> so forth. And sure. Yeah, I hear the level of appreciation for jazz in Japan is really off the charts. Yeah, and, then just, and the knowledge, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, and that's cool. That's very cool. Oh, it is, yeah. You've been in Kansas City a long time. What's the greatest thing about Kansas City? I suppose the the, the size is probably perfect for it's I mean it's, for me personally it's actually a bigger city than I'd like to live in, but but um, no, but it's about as small as you can get and still have a scene and uh, and it's a good one and I think you know, once again it has to do with the musicians that are here right now. It's a real good thing. And the way that it, it's, the city's kind of like, kind of always touted itself a jazz town, but it hasn't always been one that's my, my you know, observation. But, but uh, it, it seems to be right now kind of, you know, it's very conducive. I mean, there's quite a few places to play. I mean, it's never going to be like huge or, you 
no places anymore. I don't, I don't think we'll ever see the, the dates of you know, so many clubs and used to play all these gigs, you know, six, seven nights a week. You know, those days are gone. Yeah. But, yeah. but uh, there, there's this, it's conducive to, like I mentioned earlier, just there's a real warmth in the positions. And, and it seems like the audience is really, uh, they're, they're kind of more serious about it. You know, it used to be kind of party kind of related more to blues and you know, always jazz oh I just love jazz and blues yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> I don't like the blues or anything but the party atmosphere is kind of it's kind of taken move a little bit now it's more people go in to actually sit and listen to music and if you don't you're kind of what's he talking for yeah right <laughs> you know? right and of course Sondra was the worst about if anybody talking <laughs> She would get on a right away. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Funny. So, kind of funny jokes still. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about musicians that get crazy when people are talking. They'll they'll stop a set or they'll uh, call someone out on the carpet. So, yeah. yeah I, mean, I don't condone that at all. Car- Carmen McRae could do that. Oh man, I tell you, the people she'd sing out the table what was doing it, and pretty soon he'd have everybody else in the room against him, and they'd inevitably leave. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I bet. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, let, let's say in about ten to twenty years from now, you're sitting back and you're thinking about your life and music. What do? You, how do you want the world to remember Bob Bowman's contribution to it? Oh, I don't know. If it, I was a you know positive person, positive force, I suppose, more than anything. Help people along the way or something. I looked to this guy, a classical bassist uh, in France, uh, Francois Robot, and he's, uh, he's uh, I guess he's about 85 now, and he just plays incredibly. So that's, you know, that's a little more than 20 years old than me. And uh, I look at him and say, wow. It's amazing, you know, just physically still being able to play the bass as effortlessly as he does. This yeah. Age, you know, it's amazing. And, and he is a very, he's just a warm, warm, warm guy. And uh, we've done these uh, bass uh, workshops. And we've done one in a couple over here in Kansas City. A bunch of guys that put a bunch of Jeff Harshbarger's involved. And uh, Johnny Hamill and the classical guys and, and then they also do it up in Minneapolis to bring Francois over and, and he's got his own little following but it's amazing we had just so many people that just cared for it's a week long thing and it's amazing <laughs> but you look, I look at someone like that and I think that's a real that's a, you know it's just a real strong I, mean, I want to be looked at like that yeah guess, you know? yeah absolutely you know, I'm still doing it 20 years that's what I'd like to I looked at I played with Claude Williams up until you know, well he died, which we all thought he was gonna make it to hundred but he didn't quite. But yeah. uh, pretty much he was he was on top of his game until the very end he started getting forgetful. He'd call a tune and and realize it and we'd say, Well, we just played it. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, or sometimes he'd catch himself too, you know. But uh, but it was the kind of, you know I also don't want to Play beyond my ears, and like a, like an athlete that stays on too long. Yeah, you know? but but when I look at Francois, he's definitely not playing beyond his ears. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, Bob, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for doing it. Thanks for listening and tuning into a very special Neon Jazz interview session where we give you a bit of insight into the legends and all of those cats that give us that jazz. And thanks to the great Bob Bowman for his time and love of jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.